Well, good morning, everybody. Um, if you happen to be new or visiting today, we uh, started a brand new series three weeks ago. And the name of the series is Deeply Satisfied. And the argument that we have been building for several weeks now goes something like this. Our pervasive use of digital devices has formed us into people who are often anxious, lonely, distracted, and rarely deeply satisfied. And while many of us know this at some level, it's a bit hard to admit it, and it's hard to see how deep the problem often goes. And so uh, the very first week, I challenged everyone to track your screen time just on your phone, um, not even on your TV or your computer or your tablet. Um, just track your screen time for one week on your phone. And if you did that, uh, and then you looked at it at the end, um, I'm betting it was higher than you expected. The average American spends about four hours a day on their phone. Now, if you take out time that you're asleep, um, that is three months of every year. Three months of our waking time every year we spend just looking at these handheld devices. So uh, the second week, I challenged all of us to do a digital declutter process. During the month of October, which started uh, about a week ago, um, consider taking a break from all optional technologies in your life. So um, you can still keep your digital devices and use them for work and necessary activities and things like that. But what if you just took a break for an entire month from blogs and news sites and uh, social media and YouTube and Reddit and Timu or Discord or whatever it is that you use that's not really necessary to your life? Now, if you have not done this and you want to or you feel like you need to, it's not too late. You can just start today. Uh, I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago where I just shared a whole bunch of details about how to actually do this, how to figure out what's optional, what's not, and what to do for a month while you're doing this and what the purpose of doing this is all about. So you can go listen to that and you can just start doing this and give it a try starting today. If you are doing this, and I already talked to some people after the first service who are doing it, you've probably learned it's not as easy as you thought. Here's how one person described the experience of doing um, a digital declutter for a month. The first few days were surprisingly hard. My addictive habits were revealed in striking clarity. Moments of waiting in line, moments between activities, moments of boredom, Moments I ached to check in on my favorite people. Moments I wanted an escape. Moments I just wanted to look something up. Uh, another person doing this experiment deleted all of their news and social media apps. And the only thing they had left on their phone that gave them any new information was the weather app. And here's what she said. In that first week, I knew the hourly weather conditions in three to four different cities. Right? The compulsion to browse something was too strong to ignore. So if you're doing this digital declutter and you found yourself looking for apps that you deleted or you just felt those feelings of compulsion, right? you're not alone. So hang in there, uh, stick with it, and hopefully this will begin to reveal something really, really important to you. Now... Today, 
I want to use uh, the strongest language that we've used so far to describe the power and influence that our digital devices have over us. And by the way, it is not my language. It's biblical language that I want to apply to our culture and to our situation. And um, if you're here today and you think that what I suggest is a stretch, that's totally fine, right? It's just a suggestion. I I could be wrong and it might not apply to you, but I want to suggest that our digital devices, in the ways that most of us use them, have become like idols in our lives. So, Let's step back and talk about what idols even looked like in the ancient world. So let me give you four sort of traits of idols in the ancient world. The first is that idols were simply manufactured statues of gods. So in ancient culture, there were um, these uh, images. They were often called images, um, but really what they were were statues that just visibly represented or imaged a god that couldn't be seen. Um, They weren't two-dimensional images the way we use the word image today. These were small, usually small, three-dimensional statues carved out of wood or out of stone or sometimes out of a precious metal. And so the very first mention of idols in the Bible comes from the book of Genesis. There's a woman named Rachel, and she has a father named Laban. There's a conflict between them. There's a whole thing going on. And it says this right in the middle of that story. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. So they had these statues, these little idols in his household. And this would have been true of a lot of households, a lot of families, a lot of people, a lot of cultures in the ancient Near East. In fact, here's Just a couple of photographs of idols that archaeologists have discovered from that uh, time period and that part of the world. Most idols, as I said, are small. They're little handheld devices of worship. Uh, There are also large idols. Sometimes there are large idols set up in village squares or town squares or city squares. Or there's even massive temples built with idols inside of the temple. Uh, Particularly when you get to the Roman Empire, uh, there are idols set up to gods everywhere. One time the Apostle Paul, this is the first century, is traveling or travels to Athens. And the book of Acts tells us this. While Paul was waiting for his friends in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. People of Athens, he said, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. See, the ancient world is full of idols, much in the same way that our modern world is full of of digital devices. Now, there's an important side note that I want to make real quick. I think it is hard for us in modern Western culture to understand a world of religious idols because we don't think of the world as a supernatural place anymore. 
We have lost something in the last uh, few hundred years because of what was called the Enlightenment and now this new age of modernity. We have lost this sense that the world is an enchanted place and it is dripping with mystery and sacredness and good and evil and truth and transcendence and beauty. And, And that understanding of the world, that the world is this enchanted place of sacredness, is how humans have seen and understood the world for all of human history. People in all times and in all places, in fact, most people in the world and most places in the world today still view the world that way, except for those of us in modern Western culture. Because we have come to believe that everything that is real in the world is knowable, seeable, measurable, and understandable without reference to anything outside of our framework that might be unknowable, unseeable, unmeasurable, or ununderstandable. Now, more and more of us are realizing that there is something in this modern worldview or this modern framework that is missing. It's, it's been lost because we long to connect to something deeper. We long to connect to something more transcendent or more sacred, something mysterious, something we can't fully explain, something we can't even fully understand. We're coming to realize that's actually what it means to be human. We were made to connect to some deeper reality, to be drawn or attracted to something deeper that we find our our source and our being in. And this is why idols were so prominent in the ancient world. Because if everyone believed there's more to the world than we can see, right? That there are spiritual forces we can channel, that there are gods we can experience and worship, right? And it was never a question of whether those things existed or not. It was never a question of whether there was transcendence outside of my experience or not. It was an awareness that we live in a world saturated with transcendence. And these idols are just portals or ways or means that we can experience the transcendence of the gods. And so idols were as common in the ancient world as they are, as digital devices are today. It would have been unthinkable not to have them. They were the way that you connected to and navigated the power of the unseen world. Now, something really important happens after God saves the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, and this is the second trait of idols in the ancient world. Idols were forbidden among God's people because they became God substitutes. See, after the Israelites leave Egypt, right, we remember that story. Here's what God says to them. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And that part is really important. Before God ever tells them anything or ever has any special instructions for them, he always reminds them first, don't forget, I saved you, I love you, I care about you, I want what's best for you. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before, or the word there could be translated, besides me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters 
below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. So some of us recognize these are the first two of the Ten Commandments. And this is really significant because what God is essentially saying is we're in a relationship now, right? You are my people and I am your God. And so you can't have other gods. You can't have other idols that you say you're in a relationship with or that you worship. And by the way, this was a bit of a new idea. People often had multiple idols, right? Many different gods that they worshiped. And what God is saying here is, you think you can have all of these statues and you can still worship me and that one will not affect the other, but it doesn't work that way. I'm telling you that's not the case. One will affect the other. They will become substitutes for me in your life. You will begin to trust these idols rather than trusting in me. And so God is really clear, right? Commandments number one and two. No other gods, no worshiping idols. And this will be repeated over and over and over in the history of the people of Israel. And it never changes. Even when we get into the New Testament, there are followers of Jesus now who aren't even Jewish. They're Gentile. They didn't grow up reading the Ten Commandments. They didn't grow up learning the laws. They don't have to follow all the ritualistic laws of, of Israel anymore. And yet they're still told, don't worship idols. The Apostle Paul and the other writers of the New Testament say over and over and over, flee from idols. Don't follow idols. Don't have idols in your life. Why? Because they will become a substitute for God in your life. Now, Maybe at this point you're asking, um, what's the big deal about all of these little statues? Right? I mean, shouldn't it have been easy for God's people to just not have these little statues in their homes? Why was it such a temptation for them? Here's why. And this is the third trait of idols in the ancient world. They were attractive because everyone else had them, and they promised great benefits. See, if you were an Israelite in the ancient world, every other group of people, every other culture living around you and among you was inundated with idols, right? There were over a thousand different gods that the people of Egypt worshipped, and they were all represented by idols. Uh, the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Phoenicians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, every group of people living around and among the Israelites worshipped idols. If you didn't worship idols, you were odd. You were weird. You were strange. How could you live without one of these things in your life, right? And as an ancient Israelite, you might begin to wonder, what's the big deal about all of these idols? Why does everyone else have them and I don't? What am I missing out on? What blessing am I possibly missing out on? Maybe the reason it didn't rain last year. Maybe the reason our crops didn't grow. Maybe the reason we had a miscarriage is because we didn't pay homage to Baal, the Canaanite god of fertility, or Dagon, the Philistine god of prosperity, or Marduk, the Babylonian god of creation. 
And by the way, these idols, they don't require much. They don't require much at all. They don't give us any laws we have to follow. There's no rules we have to keep. All we have to do is set up these idols and bow down to them. And they promise blessing, prosperity, riches, wealth. They promise that our armies will win battles and our kings will expand the kingdom. And so throughout Israel's history, even though rule number one is don't have any other gods, don't worship idols, don't be like everyone else. You see the people of Israel over and over and over worshiping idols and being like everybody else. And then they go through these periods where somebody, a prophet, will stand up and say, hey, these idols aren't actually helping us, right? They're making us anxious and miserable, and we're not getting any of the benefits that they actually promised. And the people are like, yeah, you're right. And so they throw their idols away for a week or a month or maybe even a year, but they can't stay away. If you're part of this project of reading through the Bible in a year, we've been reading through the Old Testament, and it's almost like every other page there's a story of the people turning back to their idols. They cannot stay away. And this gets to a fourth and final trait of idols in the ancient world. They captured the attention, affection, and ultimately the allegiance of the people. See, there's a progression here. It starts with attention. If you see idols everywhere, and if they're really pretty and shiny, right? Many of these idols were these small handheld things, and they were overlaid with beautiful gold leaf, or maybe new space-age titanium enclosure. <laughs> Artistically, these idols were beautiful, and they were captivating, right? And so they captured everyone's attention. And the more that people gave their attention to them, the more they began to give their affection. Idols became the means by which your desires and your wants could be fulfilled. You want more children? Pray to your idols. You want a better harvest? Give some food. Set up a meal in front of one of your idols. You want protection from bandits on your journey tomorrow? Offer a sacrifice to your idols. See, it's not just that the Israelites paid lip service to the foreign gods and idols. It's that they fell in love with them. They fell in love with the benefits and the blessings that the idols promised. And this is why the prophets in the Old Testament so often describe idolatry as adultery because it's like you're cheating on your spouse you're giving your heart and your affection to another so attention leads to affection but ultimately affection leads to allegiance the attention is about our minds affection is about our hearts but allegiance is about our will our trust our actions our devotion 
There's a story we're going to read um, in a couple of months during the season of Advent. It's about a king named Ahaz, and Ahaz gets word that all his enemies have surrounded him, have surrounded the city of Jerusalem, and he's about to be attacked, and it looks like there is no chance they're going to make it. Jerusalem will be destroyed. And this king has been worshiping and bowing down to idols for many, many years. He doesn't even think about it anymore. It's just part of his life. It's second nature. It's the routine he does every single day. It's just the fabric of his life. And so a prophet comes along and says, hey, this is your one chance to turn back to God. Because your idols are not going to save you. They're not going to protect you. And they're not going to sustain your life. Only God can do that. And he will. If you will turn to him, if you will give your allegiance to him, if you will tear down your idols and put your trust in God, he will save you. And you know what the king says? Nope. Not interested. No thanks. Because the pattern of his life for so long, the attention that he had given the affection that had been cultivated, and ultimately the allegiance that he offered to his idols was so strong that he simply couldn't give them up. He couldn't let go. Now, I would suggest, and I hope you've made some of the connections already, that these digital devices that we all have can so easily become, have easily become, for many of us, modern idols. Right? They're beautiful creations, thanks to Cupertino, right? Right in the palm of our hands. They're quite godlike when you think about them. They're omnipresent. They're everywhere we go, right? They're omniscient. They provide access to pretty much all knowledge. In fact, our devices are now beginning to know things about me that I don't even know, right? Why, yes, Apple Maps, I am on my way home. Thank you for providing directions, right? And they're becoming omnipotent, all-powerful. We can do so much with them. And it's almost unthinkable today to not have one. Everybody has them. How in the world could we exist and navigate? How can we make it through the airport? How can we purchase things? How can we know where to go? How can we know the weather? How can we know? They promise so much benefit in our lives. And I don't think it's a stretch to say, for many of us, they have captured our attention, our affection, and yes, even our allegiance. Now, allegiance doesn't just mean a soldier dying for his or her country. And allegiance doesn't also just mean standing up and saying a pledge to a flag at school in the mornings, right? Allegiance is ultimately this. What do we trust as our source of contentment, joy, meaning, purpose, fulfillment, and satisfaction? Well, to the tune of many hours a day, 
more time than we spend probably on almost anything else, we're trusting in these devices to provide all of those things. We give more attention, more affection, and probably more allegiance to our digital devices than all of the evil idolaters gave to idols in the ancient world. So what do we do about it? Well, uh, the simple answer is we pursue our deep desire for satisfaction, which is a good desire, and we pursue it in God And that doesn't mean we just pray tonight, God, would you satisfy all my desires and we'll magically wake up the next morning with this sort of nebulous feeling of satisfaction. No, it means God has actually given us so many different, rich, and meaningful ways to satisfy our desires that humans were made to experience deep satisfaction. And so we figure out what those God-given ways are and we pursue them. And that's what we're going to spend the whole second half of this series unpacking. But we have to start first by being honest about the idols in our lives. So let me pray for us. Lord, I pray for every single uh, person in this room today or those who are listening, we all come from different places, from different journeys of faith. For some of us, we've read these stories about idolatry in the Bible so many times. For others, we're maybe coming back to church after having bad experiences. For others, maybe this is all new and we're just trying to figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus and who are you, God? And so wherever we are in that journey of faith, I just pray that today you would help us to look and long for that deep satisfaction that we can only find in you. We know that you can fill it up. We know that you offer us a life abundant. Help us to bring that desire to you. I pray this in your name. Amen.